feds founded the first three federal residential schools in 1883 in Alberta and Saskatchewan. First Nations people formed the majority of the population and were power brokers in that area. And one of the ways to deal with them was treaties. The other way to deal with them was to take their children hostages. That's Professor John Malloy, author of A National Crime, The Canadian Government and the Residential School System. He's our guest today on the Akamemak Podcast. Dance to wow and welcome to the Akamemak Podcast. I'm your host, Perry Belgard, National Chief of the Assembly of First Nations. Akamemak is a Cree word for you all persevere, or in other words, let's keep going and don't give up. So on this podcast, we discuss the leading issues facing First Nations peoples with top experts, with elders, and community leaders. And today, we are discussing the history and legacy of the residential school system in the wake of the heartbreaking find of the unmarked graves of 215 children at the Kamloops Indian Residential School in British Columbia. Our guest today is John Malloy. He did groundbreaking research on the use of residential schools in the genocide against First Nations and Indigenous people in Canada. His award-winning book on that subject, A National Crime, The Canadian Government and the Residential School System, has been described as one of the 100 most important Canadian books ever written. John Malloy is also Professor Emeritus in the Departments of Native Studies and History at Trent University. He joins us from Peterborough. John Malloy, a great big welcome to our Akamemuk podcast. Thank you very much. I'm honored to be talking to you. So, John, first question is, what was your reaction when you first heard about the 215 unmarked children's graves found at Kamloops at the Indian Residential School there? Well, I think like many, many Canadians, I was shocked. But like not enough Canadians, I was not surprised. Hmm. Uh, this, uh, we keep getting uh, new discoveries, new revelations of the horrors that were the system. But many, many Canadians don't take serious note of that nor do they prioritize that in terms of uh, questions of reconciliation, of, of moving the government to different types of more supportive policies. You know, while uh, the government makes uh, sympathetic statements, like about the 215, other parts of their policies, as you know, as, as National Chief, uh, the refusal to provide equal funding for the education and health and welfare of Aboriginal children, other policies are, are stubbornly adhered to, suggesting that 215 hasn't pushed this government or other governments very far forward, unfortunately. So, John, you're the author of this famous book, A National Crime. So what, why did Canada in the first place establish these schools? What were the ideological roots of these residential schools in the first place? Why did John A. Macdonald put these things into place? That's a, a really good question. And, and there are there are two reasons uh, which, uh, which run side by side, certainly don't contradict each other. One was that, uh, and it's quite simple to explain, I guess, one was the sort of spirit of the imperial age, which talked about the white man's burden, right? We have a responsibility to those we govern uh, to do X, Y, and Z. Well, to do X, Y, and Z, of course, boiled down at the end of the day to destroy their culture and turn them into white people. Mm. that that was possible. And it was determined that, that this was a good method of, uh, of, of doing that, that the schools were marvels or would be marvels at social engineering. 
The second reason, excuse me, and particularly in McDonald's case, because you have to ask the question, why did McDonald's start residential schools in 1883? He actually was given a report on residential schools and told to go ahead, got the green light from a fellow he had hired to, to do an, an investigation into schools, Nicholas Flood Davin, who became quite an important figure in conservative politics. Uh, he got that report in 1879 and did nothing about it until 1883. And in 1883, as you know, uh, the feds founded the first three federal residential schools in Alberta and Saskatchewan. The reason, of course, for that was that 1883 was seminal in terms of Canada's national policy, which was to unite the country on the spine of, of that railroad that was going to bring settlers and profit. It would become the basis for a national economy. In fact, it was called the national policy. Mm -hmm. In 1883, that railroad was threatened by the fact that in that year, it got to the Western elements, the Western area, excuse me, of pre-control of the West. Remember that in the 1870s, First Nations people in that area, anyways, formed the majority of the population and were power brokers in that area. I mean, as one member of parliament said to McDonald one day, the Blackfoot have repeating rifles, they could wipe out your Northwest Mounted Police in half an hour. They needed to be dealt with. And one of the ways to deal with them, of course, was treaties. Mm -hmm. The other way to deal with them was to take their children hostages. And that certainly was part of the ethic of residential schools. And Nicholas Flood Davin, who wrote the report for McDonald, had been told when he looked at the American system, had been told by the founder of the American system that his uh, senior Indian affairs officials in the States had told them he needed to go out to see the Sioux uh, because they were the most troublesome to the American government and get hold of their children because their children would be hostages to the good uh, behavior of their parents. It's an idea that, that Davin brought back, and it's an idea that, that is there in Canadian files. In fact, uh, the Presbyterian Church uh, in 1885 sent McDonald a petition supported by Davin and other senior members of the Western administration, arguing that they needed to have a residential school uh, in Regina because the children would be hostages to their parents' good behavior, right? And so quite, it's interesting that to follow like the placement of the schools. Where did McDonald decide to put those schools? Well, he decided to put those schools you know, at the, moment, at, the, uh, at the point of political and military crises was, was pre-Blackfoot territory. Those were the people to worry about. And you can follow that logic on to other areas of disquiet. Uh, in, 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 in British Columbia, Kamloops School, for example, right? There'd been trouble there. In Metlakatla, up uh, further north in British Columbia, there was trouble there. And uh, in Cooper Island, uh, got a residential school, there'd been trouble there. McDonald at one point said, uh, we need to have lots of Indian agents uh, because Indians, after all, are savage and can't be trusted. And one of the ways of just abusing those Indians was to take their children, quite obviously. Those two sentiments, uh, I think one of the one of the sort of ending uh, of res schools, because you always want to say they were so damn important in terms of state development, why were they so badly neglected? Right. I think the answer to that question is pretty simple. Once you've tied the Indians down, uh, and residential schools are part of that, and white civilizers, white settlers, excuse me, are part of that, and, you know, the Mounties and other uh, strong-arm military tactics are part of all that. Once you've, you've got hold of Indians and they're under your control, you don't need to do anything else. You certainly don't have to uh, worry about residential schools. 
You know, when Joseph Trotsch, uh, who was the negotiator of British Columbia's entry into uh, Confederation in 1870, remember 1870 is a significant date. 1870 is Treaty 1, right? Starts negotiating in, uh, in, in northwestern Ontario, et cetera. And Trotsch said to McDonald, we don't need treaties in British Columbia. We've already got them controlled, right? We mm. have a foot on their neck. They're not Plains Indians. I mean, Plains Indians were to be worried about, right? Because they had their horses, they had their repeating rifles, they had a fine military tradition, and they were in the majority. And Trutch mm. pointed out, well, these BC Indians are all divided up. They live at the mouths of all those rivers. The easiest way of taking care of them, if they get annoying, is to get a naval boat, sail into the harbor, and, and blow up the village. The treaties were a basic element of state development. You needed them in, 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 in Saskatchewan. You didn't need them in British Columbia. So. so colonization, oppression, and control. Yeah. You know, that's basically the intention of the residential schools. Colonization, right. oppression, control, uh, really break down identity, family, right. community, nation, self. That's it in a nutshell. And so right. these residential schools, but there's uh, also industrial schools. So yeah. back in my home territory, the Regina Industrial School. That's was, right. It was part of that whole system. And so these schools, uh, the, the initial designs of these schools, um, I heard a comment and read something recently that a lot of them didn't include playgrounds, but did include graveyards. What are your thoughts on that statement? That's, that's right. Uh, you know, that, that is, to say the least, ironic. Uh, and everything... The schools were, uh, in theory anyways, were all inclusive in terms of the logic of civilizing people, right? So Indians were encouraged at some schools, uh, and, and, and this went terribly wrong for the government, to play games, but only to play games that had rules and regulations. School administrators were encouraged to, uh, to uh, introduce hockey and baseball and those types of things, but don't let them play lacrosse because lacrosse is just a savage game. They run around and hit each other with sticks. It's pretty much how it was described. So even recreation, to the extent that it existed, was about order. That's why so many schools had hockey teams. That's mm-hmm. why so many schools had uh, brass bands, these sorts of things, because all of those things were purveyors of order and discipline. Those were the two words. That's what you were after. And the problem with Indian parents is that they didn't understand order and discipline. I mean, you go back to that over and over again. Indian parents are too permissive. They don't spank their children. Uh, they don't raise them up to be orderly, disciplined adults. Wow. And that's what you wanted. You wanted, I mean, the number of times I've seen statements saying, when these kids graduate and we've created this social psychological alchemy, they will no longer be a burden to the state but as a supporter of the state. So you're going to convert these people right, mm-hmm. as, as, a, as, a, as a reliable population. John, there's thousands of Indigenous children, First Nations children died at the residential schools. You know, they died from abuse and disease and neglect and hunger. Um, you know, the Truth and Reconciliation Center in Manitoba, I think, documented, like within the residential school system, the documented deaths were approximately 4,000. And, uh, and there's probably more, as evidenced from Kamloops. You know, and so getting the proper research done and the investigations done. But to what degree was this planned as part of the whole residential school experience? And why? Like, we've called it a genocide of our people. What are your thoughts on that? Uh-oh. When I was uh, research director for the 
Truth and Reconciliation Commission, we had long meetings with senior lawyers at, at Harvard and UCLA on the issue of genocide. You know, what, what was a genocide? How could you describe what a genocide was? We have the genocide convention sort of thing, which people often point to saying, well, removing children from their parents and educating them outside of their culture is, uh, is genocidal. So said people. Removing, removing children, forcibly removing children from their families yeah. and inflicting harm. Those are the two elements in the, in the UN definition of genocide. There's a third element, and that's intention. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's where all of us have tripped up, right? Because when you're talking about genocide, you're not only talking about destruction of culture. We all agree it was that, cultural genocide. Uh, what we don't agree on was the extent to which it was genocide, i.e., could be uh, uh, compared to what went on in um, in Nazi uh, Germany or Turkey or these places where you were actually out to wipe out that group, whatever it was, as a physical entity, right? Not just destroy their their social relations, but actually kill off all the people, right? If that's the definition of genocide, uh, none of us have ever been able to find it, right? Certainly, it's consequential physical genocide, right? Children were removed and put into a place, residential schools, badly funded. They were badly fed. They were open to the two big killers, uh, which were tuberculosis and measles. And, of course, to the other soul-destroying process, which was a a process where children were shamed about their parents, about their traditions, about their language, etc. and so forth. This was a real killing off, right? And whereas we know children were taught, in some respects, most unfortunately, to behave as white people, to mimic their own oppressors. So we know that if you're looking for where sexual and physical abuse comes from on the First Nations reserves, First Nations communities, you can point back to the residential school where children learned that physical violence was a road to power and mimic that sort of behavior when they got home, that, uh, that unfortunately, uh, re-socialization worked with respect to all the nasty stuff, right? Like division in communities and, 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 and power situations and mm-hmm. the oppression of women and all that kind of stuff, which is the nasty bits of non-Indigenous cultures. So we had the Indian Act as well in 1876, you know, where we weren't allowed to leave the reserve without a permit from the Indian age until 1951 and no access to legal counsel to help fight our fights and claims till 1951 either. And we couldn't vote in elections till 1961. And of course, the Indian Act also broke down our systems of governance and imposed a two-year elective system on our people. So between the residential schools, which was a breakdown of identity and self, that everything good about being an Indian is no good. Your long hair is no good. Your language is no good. Your families are no good. And then on top of that, the, the starvation and the abuse. I've always said, you're not healthy when you come out of that system. So would you agree? Was that the intention? Yeah. If you look at the Indian Act, it's easy enough to talk about social engineering or an attempt at social engineering, right, in that way. But if you look at the Indian Act, even the most, quote, unquote, innocent sections of it, you, you begin to realize pretty quickly that the people who wrote the Indian Act and its amendments didn't need, in fact, to know anything about Indians, except that nobody seemed to like them. Mm -hmm. Because if you look at what that act says, it simply takes Indian communities and Indian individuals 
and rewrites them as non-Aboriginal. For Plains people, God's most special people, the Plains Creek, for Plains people, band membership was a, a very elastic thing. If Perry Belgard's family doesn't want to stay in that particular band, they got on the horse and they rode off and they joined another band. After mm-hmm. the Indian Act came along, that was not possible. You were a member of the band that you were born in. And if you mm-hmm. went across the, the river and tried to live in that other band, you were a trespasser. You had no rights in that band, according to the Canadian government. So right from the ground floor, that act was a, a, an act of, of, of social and political and economic reorganization. So I said, white guys in Ottawa who were writing the law didn't have to know a damn thing about Indians. What they had to know was what would make Indian communities look like they were non-Indigenous. And you read the act, uh, you know, section by section, and suddenly you realize, hey, hold it here a second, right? This is another form of integration and cultural destruction. Every bit as vicious in terms of its negative impact, every bit as destructive as the residential school system itself. Mm -hmm. So between the two, I always say it's colonization, oppression, control, and I have used the word genocide. It breaks down a uh, uh, our self and our peoples and it's uh, we we still feel the intergenerational trauma and it's yep. reflected every day under the reserves oh, yeah. but now back to the residential school system um there were some people that tried to expose this to government you know and now i'm gonna call them some heroes for example like dr bryce um how successful were some of these people in trying to say hey prime minister and powers to be in ottawa these schools aren't being properly run and they're not doing what they're, if they're there to educate children, they're not educating children, you know? And so Dr. Bryce, we always talk about his study and his report to Ottawa. Were there others? And what can you tell me about that? There certainly were, uh, there certainly were others right? for good or ill reasons, right? Wings of the uh, uh, French Canadian liberal political movement were vocally opposed to residential schools but they were opposed to Indian residential schools for all the wrong reasons, as it were, right? They were, they were complaining that here's the federal government funding religious organizations. So that, that was their problem, right? That aside, there were voices uh, in Canada, but especially voices within the Indian Affairs Department, as Bryce was briefly in terms of his public career, who did raise objections, who did make the sort of comments you're saying, These educational institutions are not educational institutions, right? These schools manifest all the marks of abuse and neglect that would be talked about down the road. Uh, And down the road was not all that far down the road after Bryce, whose big report was 1920. Uh, Mm But the 1950s, uh, we had other people coming in, 1950s and 1960s, writing reports to the department saying, this is not, not working. This is badly engineered. This is oppressive. This is underfunded, which was always one of the problems, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you, can't, you can't have nourishing food if you don't have a nourishing budget. Uh, simple things like that. So there were critics. And indeed, amongst the critics are the unknown heroes, who, it, who people may not want to call a hero at all. One of, one of mine is good old Jean Chrétien, who uh, at one point said, when he was Minister of Indian Affairs, he said, you know, it would be better for children to get no education than to go to residential schools. I mean, he was dead set against them. And he was a leader in winding them up, right, in getting out from under. But out from under, remember, uh, was fighting off the influence of the Christian churches. And they were, even in those days, although it was waning, 
they were uh, they were big counterweights in the uh, in the in the political system. Right? I mean, everybody knows that about Quebec politics. But the fact is, if you if you uh, look at uh, at petitions to, for residential schools for member by members of Parliament over the years, they was always backed up by a bishop or you know uh, you know the local priests and nuns that sort of thing. So you don't you know your your choice as a minister of Indian affairs was to say hmm. I'm going to do what I'm asked by the people that elect me, or I'm going to swim up against the tide, right? And not acquiesce to the development of yet another school in yet another part of Canada. So the politics were against you. Uh, but there were increasingly in the post-Second World War period studies which were done, which condemned the system. The Caldwell Report was one of the first ones, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you read the Caldwell Report, and he was head of the uh, Canadian Welfare Council at that point, Caldwell never talked about abuse. He never talked about bad food. He never talked about any of those things. Caldwell said in his report, to boil it all down, if you want to miseducate people, you develop the Indian residential school. It doesn't work. It's based mm. on all the wrong principles, et cetera, and so forth. We'd get to reports on physical, sexual abuse, et cetera, but the, the earliest studies simply condemn the system as, as just a bad idea. Mm-hmm. So the Bryce report, the Caldwell report, there are two things that said, hey, there's these are you you can help, almost lift them up as I won't call them heroes, but almost, you know, for trying to expose the uh, ill thought out. One of the best one of the best reports was a report from five children who, who had been to residential school. They were described as uh, as successful graduates, and I only know, know the names of one or two of them. And in Canadian terms, yeah, they were successful. One was a lead educator and these sorts of things, right? And what they did, the department interviewed them and took their narrative. They'd all been in residential schools and then published the narrative, right? And the narratives were very negative, to say the least, right? The, uh, you know, the description of, of the mush hole, the beatings and all. It was all there, right? One, one of the people that was interviewed said, I'm a little worried about cooperating with this study because I'm going to have to tell you the truth. I'm going to have to tell you the things that really did and are happening in those systems. And the department published that book, the booklet or whatever, and anytime anybody popped up and said residential schools were a good idea, they gave them a copy of the book. So at the end of the day, most of the Department of Indian Affairs senior administration anyways, you know, were saying, let's get the hell out of this. This is a bad idea. And the mm-hmm. children all along were pressing for improvements, quote unquote, in the residential system. So at the end of the system, they were talking about converting these schools to high schools as well as junior schools, right? And then that, of course, is because the department was trying to wind the system down. That's mm. how we got the boarding system that has that has led to so much tragedy and abuse in, in, in white cities, right, where kids were taken and, and boarded out in non-Aboriginal homes and then went to a provincial school as day students, right? And That's right. What studies we've had of that, Tanya Tadaga's book, right, on fallen feathers, et cetera, revealed that these were very bad places. And I was at once asked to do some research for a court case. I don't know where the court case has gone. The first report I got on this new system, uh, very early in the system, was by a white uh, sociologist educator who simply said, this is dreadful, as usual. Uh, it says the children will be supervised. They haven't hired supervisors. Children are just sort of left in non-Aboriginal homes. No supervision of the homes. 
no supervision of the children in schools. It was yet another administrative mess. Mm-hmm. So the residential school system, John, operated from 1879. Uh, your book says till 18, 1986, but the last one closed in 1996 at Labrette. That's right. Cal Indian Residential School, so yeah. 1996. So to our listeners, that's a long time to have this residential school system. And I, I use that word lightly, school, because they weren't really right. schools for an education. There was a different intention behind them. Uh, right up until 1996. And then through your book, The National Crime was there. Then we've had the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Uh, you know, we had the apology for the residential schools from the Harper government. And the TRC did all their work. They came out their report with their 94 calls to action in 2015. And then all of a sudden in Kamloops, we find the 215 unmarked graves. And then Canadians are surprised <laughs> by this. Why is there still a collective amnesia in Canada? Why is it that Canadians still don't understand or get it about the genocide to First Nations people in Canada? Why is that? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it, that, that's a re really interesting question. A friend of mine called Henry Reynolds is the leading uh, historian uh, of Indigenous, non-Indigenous relations in Australia, published book after book, quite brilliant studies. And one of the books he wrote was called Why Weren't We Told? I.e., why do we wake up now when book is published in the 1980s or the 1990s, whatever. Why, why, why do we wake up and find this mess? Why weren't we told about this earlier, right, as, as, as non-Indigenous Australians? <laughs> the book is pretty simple. He told his graduate students to go out and do research and find out about the telling. And of course, like in Canada, over and over and over again, newspaper editors, journalists, politicians, academics, Indigenous people themselves had stood up and said, hey, guess what? There's 215 dead in an unmarked graveyard just outside uh, whatever, Adelaide, wherever it was in Australia, right? I, there's this tragedy which has gone on. Uh, and, uh, and, and the why weren't we told book simply said, but we have been over and over and over again. Uh, and, and we don't make any progress uh, with respect of, uh, uh, with respect of, knowledge of the system as the basis for real reform in the system. That, that the two don't seem to equate themselves in Australia, and they certainly don't equate one to the other in Canada. I mean, how many tragedies have you lived through? Right? Which at the end, you know, Dud, murder of Dudley George, et cetera, and so forth, one horror after the other, like Oka. Uh, can you draw a straight line from these incidents, like the 215, to real changes in Canadian attitudes, and more importantly, real changes in the Canadian government's approach to First Nations people. I mean, Trudeau has made all kinds of positive, supportive noises, but he hasn't phoned up uh, Cindy Blackstock, as far as I know, to tell her that, uh, yeah, they'll live up to what the Human Rights Commission has told them that she should be doing. How, long, how old is that, uh, that decision? Uh, 10, 15 years now? Yeah, we started that uh, Canadian Human Rights Tribunal as AFN, along with Cindy, about over ten plus years, and we've yeah. won it. And yeah, I uh, knew I was part of the uh, part of the interviewing. I had to give testimony at that trial, and you know it was ridiculous because we had three commissioners, human rights commissioners, and as you gave your testimony, you could see them smiling and nodding their head. They already know, knew this story. Mm -hmm. What we didn't know was what the, what the result of that story was going to be, which is years and years of stonewalling by one government after the other in terms of uh, treating First Nations children, uh, Indigenous children with equality, 
they still aren't doing it. Yeah, there's so much we have to do to educate Canadians uh, about the the real history in Canada and uh, the role of the of the uh, of governments, federal, provincial, and as well the role of the churches. Um, you know, and so going forward, uh, we have 38 million people in Canada, and as First Nations people, we're about five percent of that. And we've always talked about the treaty relationship, about peaceful coexistence and mutual respect. And we have a long way to go in spite of all these things we've talked about, the residential schools, the Indian Act, how these have, and the treaty relationship with the Crown. This has to be taught in the school systems. Uh, you know, the, the um, incidents at Oka, Burnt Church, Gustafson Lake, uh, Kettle Stony Point with Dudley George being shot. Now we've got uh, Joyce Eshaquan in the healthcare system. Uh, the racism there, and we've got the Mi'kmaq fishers, you know, trying to implement their treaty right to fish for lobster. Like the list will go on and on and on. So, in spite of all these challenges, John, my last question to you, uh, as someone that's researched the residential schools and the genocide of that towards First Nations people, uh, we're in 2021 now, and with the discovery of the 215 unmarked graves uh, of children at Kamloops, what gives you hope? Well, I, I go back to. Uh... I go back to my friend Henry Reynolds in Australia, and uh, in one of his books, he describes an indigenous uh, community adjacent to one of the Australian uh, cities in northern Australia, which is one of the more brutal areas of the country, both in terms of its genocidal history uh, and, and its, its landscape, right? It's a difficult place to live. And he talks about the settlement of indigenous people right beside the white settlement, and it's it's not pretty. But what he says, and what I think we can say about Canada as well. Uh, he says it's amazing, given the socioeconomic, et cetera, conditions of these Indigenous people in that community, that they're still there. He said, but what's more amazing, he said, is that they're still determined to be there. They're not going away. They're going to push forward. They're going to resist. They're going to maintain their languages and their identities. And if anything, despite all the scandals and despite all the losses and the few victories you represent, as uh, Perry Belcourt, that resistance and determination, that's what we need to be hopeful for, that someday we'll actually end up where we want to be because we've had warriors of all sorts uh, who have struggled to make that true. I grew up in a, in a Scottish-Canadian, Scottish-American family. I remember uh, uh, when I was working for the Royal Commission uh, being charged by... Uh, George Erasmus, who, of course, was the chair, uh, to do a, a job. A specific, he wanted me to do a specific job as, and, and roll it into a recommendation. And he said, you got two weeks, boy. And I said, well, I can't do it in two weeks. And he said, why not? I said, I have to. I bought my tickets for Scotland. I'm going home. He said, no, you're going to get new tickets. I said, no, I can't do that. I've got to go home. He said, why the hell do you have to go home? I said to him, you're not the only one running a decolonizing movement. So were we back in Scotland. He looked at me and said, I guess you got to go, right, John? I said, yeah, i got to go. You know, <laughs> and the Scottish people have struggled and struggled and struggled. We're almost there, right? We're almost got the English off our back. We're almost got a country that's of, for, by, and about Scottish people. We're almost got uh, revitalization of language, these, these sorts of things. You know, mm -hmm. a number of years ago, there was a, there was a movement, a court case type thing in Scotland because uh, this German industrialist had bought one of the islands and what he wanted to do was dig a big hole in it and sell all the gravel to you know European construction. The islanders said, what the hell are we going to do? We've got to protect our island from these people. Guess what they did? 
they brought in a Mi'kmaq elder to teach them about land claims. But that's what it was all about, you know, resistance and pushing back. Mm -hmm. And uh, they pushed back, and so have you guys. Well, Dr. John Malloy, thank you so much for your dedication, commitment, for your research and for your work and your book that's helped a lot of people, uh, a national crime, educate Canadians and uh, and assist First Nations people in our struggle for, for justice and equality and for fundamental human rights. Thank you so much for coming on our Akamema podcast. You're very welcome. I hope to see you soon. And I want to thank all the people for listening to the Akamemic podcast. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe so you don't miss future episodes. Give us a rating and tell your friends about us on social media. And as always, we want to give a big shout out to the Red Dog Singers of the Treaty 4 Territory in Southern Saskatchewan for providing our theme music. Until next time, I'm Perry Belgard, National Chief of the Assembly of First Nations.